It's sermon time, um, and I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew 12. The longer I've been studying to preach on Sundays, the more I kind of compare it to cooking a meal. Uh, it's not done until it's done and then served, it, and that's the, that's the process of preaching is serving it, and I... As I was preparing it, the Lord was laying a lot on my heart from the text, more than I had anticipated. So, um, as they say, buckle up. Matthew 12, let me read verses 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This teaching of Jesus is coming in the series of accusations that are being made against Jesus in his ministry. There's eight accusations that I kind of mined out of this text as I did some overview study. Eight different categories that Jesus was falsely accused of being that were um, given out, leveraged against Christ by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to crimp the hose of Jesus's ministry and trying to misrepresent him so that they would not believe, so the crowds would not believe in him as Messiah. That's what false teaching is meant to do, to distract, to distort, to twist, to deceive, to disarm people from being able to see and aim their hearts and lives at Christ. And this category of deception is the accusation that Jesus is a hypocrite. It's the ultimate accusation that had been given in the last section of Scripture. Jesus, as we know in the context of uh, verses 22 to 32, he had healed a demon-oppressed man. See that in verse 22? He healed him. He was demon-oppressed. He was also blind and mute. And he delivered the man from the demon. He gave him sight. He gave him the ability to speak. He basically gave this person his life back, his faculties, and delivered him from an oppression in the unseen world. It was radical. It was an incontestable ministry. It was not something that, I should say, uncontestable ministry. It, it was something that people could not refute. It was irrefutable. It was the power of God on display. It was heaven on earth in this man's life. And there were a crowd of people there, and they're watching this probably in the Galilean region, and they're wondering who to believe because the Pharisees say he did that by the power of Beelzebul. That's the accusation that Jesus is a Satanist or satanic. You just did that. We're not denying that you just did that, but you just did that by the devil's power, not the Holy Spirit. And Jesus puts the pressure back on the Pharisees by basically undoing their accusation, saying it makes no sense at all for me to be combating the forces of the devil by the devil's power. 
That would just be a complete contradiction altogether. And so he then, in verses 31 and 32, flips the script on the Pharisees and says, you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You've blasphemed against the Spirit, and you will not be forgiven, verse 31. In this lifetime, he was pronouncing the sentence of damnation on them. What I mean by that is he was saying, you are damned to hell before you died. It's a place that we talked about over the last couple of weeks that you never want to be. There is a place in um, certain people's lives where they come to the point of no return. They become so hardened in their hearts. They become so resistant to the Holy Spirit. They become so seared in their conscience. They become um, so just uh, callous to hearing the gospel that God eventually will give them over even in their lifetime to eternal judgment. It's the doctrine of reprobation. It's where God lets someone go. That's what Jesus was pronouncing upon these Pharisees. It wasn't just by what they said. It was more the state of their heart that was revealed by what they said. And they were condemning Jesus. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit and they were seeing things all wrong. And they were doing that to confuse the crowds because, again, the crowds were amazed. Look at verse 23. They were amazed by Jesus. Can this be the son of David? They were interested in Christ. Here, these people would have been raised in Judaism. These people would have known nothing different than the, the religion of the Pharisees. And I'm all for homeschooling, but I said it first there, I'll say it again. It's as if these people were homeschooled under the Pharisees' religion. They knew no different. That's what they were schooled in. It's what they were raised in. And so the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, they were the religious political leaders. They were ones who were to be trusted. They were experts in the law, experts in what they did. They, they had the, the garments of authority that were not to be doubted or contested. And so you have this kind of whodunit murder moment where Jesus is saying, you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees are going, you are a Satanist. And so the crowds have to choose whom they will follow. And the stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. Will you follow Christ? Will you see him for who he is? Or will you follow the Pharisees? And will you doubt Christ to your own detriment and demise? Somebody is committing blasphemy. Who is it? Is it the Pharisees or is it Christ? They're calling, the Pharisees were calling Jesus something that was very grave, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They were calling him Um, someone who does miracles in disguise. They were calling him a fake, an actor, a false teacher, a deceiver, Um, wrong in motive, wrong in method, wrong in source, wrong in integrity, all evil. They were saying, Jesus, you're a hypocrite. Jesus, you are the hypocrite of hypocrites. That's what they were doing. This is the accusation against Jesus that he's answering in verses 33 through 37. The section I just read, if you'll look in your Bibles, probably the little title above the section is something like what I have, a tree is known by its fruit. Well, that's kind of a vanilla Sunday school um, sort of title that does not do this passage justice at all. 
Jesus is not just introducing trees and fruit. He's introducing a whole host of analogies compressed together in a few verses to flip the script on the Pharisees because they've accused him of a hypocrite. And he's saying, instead of accusing me of being a Satanist, why don't you look under the hood of what's going on in the Pharisees' hearts? Before you believe them, see them for who they really are. He's unmasking Satan in their lives. He's showing the crowds their error. Those who held the highest religious office needed to be exposed. Questioning Pharisees was highly suspect. It'd be like if you're raised in the Roman Catholic Church, someone questioning the Pope, questioning the tradition, questioning the religion, raised a Mormon. You're questioning the Book of Mormon. You're questioning Joseph Smith, raised in the Unitarian Church. You're, you're questioning their philosophy of life, their philosophy of religion. You're questioning all kinds of things. And this is not something that is 180 out from my counseling office. When I talk to you and, and, and minister to you and in the body of Christ, I know that you are tempted in ways or exposed to things like Mormonism, like Roman Catholicism, things that can distract and take you away from the purity of the gospel. A lot of times... You need to see it for what it is for the sake of your own soul or the sake of your kids' lives to be on the right track. A lot of times, and I'll say this, in our culture, we are given, we are introduced in this kind of thinking where we should doubt ourselves if we ever want to judge anything, if we ever want to call anything out at all. It's like, you're so judgy. You're so judgmental. I mean, people want you to think that you're a modern-day Pharisee if you are discerning truth from error. There is obviously sinful judgmentalism. Jesus said in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. He does not want us to judge like the Pharisees were judging. The Pharisees were judging out of an errant heart. They were judging out of a mixed motivation. They were judging based on their own pedigree, their own prowess, their own um, intellects. They were judging on the basis of themselves. We judge on the basis of one thing and one thing alone, and that is the Scripture. We have the Word of God, and we have the mind of Christ We have the illumination of the Holy Spirit as Christians to use the word of God and look through the lens of scripture and say, that's true and that's false. First hour I talked about it. You can be a little boy. And uh, my 21-year-old at probably three years old was in the, the, the room around the house, you know, where... We're listening and, you know, you always wonder what your kids are watching on TV. And my, my kid, Logan, was watching something and suddenly it was about evolution. And I heard in the back room, he's going, that's not true. <laughs> How did he know that? It's because scripture is clear. Scripture is clear and it gives us the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. And people doubt themselves. They say, am I exalting myself? Am I having the pride of the Pharisees? Am I committing the same blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I don't want to do this. But everything can be boiled down to a single question. Are you being judgmental or are you being discerning? You need to be a discerning Christian. Christianity is boring and, and it's, it's just blasé unless you are recognizing that there is a battle around you all the time. People are trying to, Satan is trying to distract you. He's trying to pull you away. There are all kinds of ideological um, off-ramps to get you distracted from Jesus. We want the pure, this is, 
I believe it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We need the pure, simple devotion to Christ. And in that very context, Paul is exposing Satan as the angel of light to take you away from the pure and simple devotion to Christ. And it comes from being a discerning Christian, seeing Christ for who he is. This was uh, embedded in the minds of Judaism back in the, uh, the constitution of the nation of Israel. They were going into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, Moses said, what do you do with a false prophet? Well, you surely don't listen to them. Deuteronomy 13, 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder um, that he tells you comes to pass, um, you know, that's fine. If he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Who brought, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so that you shall purge the evil from your midst. You have these dreamers, you have these prophets that would come and do a sign and wonder and then they would promote false gods. They would f- promote syncretism. Hey, just join a little bit of the other religion. It's okay, it won't hurt you. That person should be purged from the community He should be stoned, put to death. Verse 6 of Deuteronomy 13. This is Old Testament, but it really is the same mindset that we should have in the New Testament. If your brother or the son of your mother or the son of your daughter or the wife you embrace or your friend who is is as your own soul, listen to these descriptions. If he entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which friend, um, which Neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall you, your eye pity, pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Applied in the New Testament, this is a little bit of a different governance here. We're not stoning people to death, but it is a call to radical separation from anyone that would entice you or draw you away from the pure, simple devotion to Christ. You say, oh, how high are the stakes? Are the stakes as high as being executed in this situation? Worse, eternal hell. If you introduce syncretism in your life, if you introduce like syncing up Christian gospel teaching and doctrine with anything else, it's wrong and it's damaging. And it'll damage your kids. It'll damage your family. They're all watching you. Pure and simple devotion to Christ is what we are called to. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 17, um, if you leave false teaching alone, it upsets whole families. It spreads like gangrene, people who have swerved from the truth. In that context, it was talking about how the resurrection had already happened. It was an end times theology matter that was upsetting all kinds of people because it was error introduced into the church. 
You say, I'm not in seminary. I'm not in these Bible debates. Listen, it's very subtle how people will take you out of the truth. Factious men, people who stir up division in the church. You warn them once, then you warn them twice, and then you have nothing more to do with them. We're called to refute false doctrine. An elder is called to, according to Titus 1, to stand up and um, hold firm to the trustworthy word and give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You'll have insubordinate people, empty talkers, deceivers. They, Verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teachers always use false doctrine as a cloak for their own sin and their own selfishness. They always want money. You can always follow the money. They always want lust. They always want greed. They're always, they're, as Second Peter puts it in Jude, they have eyes full of greed and immorality. That's the false teacher. It's not just the charlatans that are out on you know, TV and media that are kind of goofy and ridiculous. It's those who slither in underneath the radar. They want to they wanna trick you um, and, and get you talking about things that don't seem like they matter that much. So you take the security fences down and let in a snake. You want to be very careful. Deacons even are called to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If you don't, the health of the church, the witness of the church, the unity of the church is lost because Satan's lies are settled. If Satan was unmasked, if he didn't look good on the outside, we would run from him like a monster chasing us down a dark hallway. We would flee the devil. You say, how big of a deal really is this? Are we just quibbling over doctrinal matters where we could just, you know, we should just hold hands and sing the song, Why Can't We Be Friends? You know, I would just sway back and forth. I had this person I care about deeply at lunch on Sunday say, you know, um, what really is, you know, I've got friends and they're just sad. They're sad that the church is so divided. They're so sad about that. We're just, you know, uh, why can't we get along with people in certain, you know, charismatic um, arenas and just be friends and, and, and do all these things? And, you know, there are, there are whole movements that have come out where leaders are given over in homosexuality and things, but it doesn't matter. They've dealt with that. And, you know, and, and, and this signs and wonders movement is okay, right? I mean, why do we need to be so closed off from them? Well, let me say this, and I want to be clear. On secondary and tertiary issues, I will not immediately break fellowship with anybody. I, I love the gospel with all kinds of people who love the gospel. I have great Presbyterian friends who have complete different, you know, hermeneutics and things and do infant baptism. I, I love them in the Lord. I love, uh, you know, charismatic brothers and sisters. Um, but it comes down to one thing. Do we love the word of God and its sufficiency and authority in our lives? That's what everything rises and falls on. The authority and sufficiency and a power of scripture to rule and dictate what we believe. If you put experience or tradition or, um, or someone's um, personality on par with the scripture ever, then it breaks the fellowship. The scripture has to be the guide and rule for everything. It's the sufficiency, meaning that all we need for life and godliness is given to us in the word of God. The revelation of God that is inspired and concretized and clear comes from the scripture. That's how we discern between truth and error. 
When people begin to trump up an experience and say, well, you know, I had this experience and so that tells me something that I should believe about the Bible, that's when you have a problem. That's what breaks the fellowship. That's it. It's when someone has their ghost story that they tell you and they're like, look, but this happened. It happened, so you can't refute it. I mean, who are you to tell me that my ghost story isn't true because you weren't there. When you start to hear people talk like that, that's where fellowship breaks. You say, let's go to the scripture. Let's examine the scripture. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 and what was going on with the speaking of tongues and known languages in Acts 2 and how that could be brought to bear in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Let's have that discussion. What does it mean that tongues will cease themselves? What was the apostolic age? Why were there signs and wonders to verify and validate the early church? Ask those questions and then we're having a conversation whether you are a cessationist or a continuationist and why. That's fine. That's fair. But that's coming under the scripture. You have people that will claim to, uh, you know, people are reached um, in the gospel of Christ all around the world, even if there aren't preachers preaching the gospel. Who's heard that one? You know, where people just are coming to faith in Christ because they had a gospel dream. Well, who am I to doubt or refute somebody's dream? So now you're back on your heels and you're going, well, um, and they say, yeah, how else were they going to believe? So God reached them through a dream. Well, I go to Romans 10 at that point and say, how shall they hear without a preacher? How will they call upon him who they've not believed? And how, th- how should they believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how should they hear without someone preaching? Why did Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say that? Should we just call the missionaries home? Should we just let the dreams happen? Well, people come up with all kinds of rationale for what really is going on spiritually and how people are being saved. But I know with the authority of scripture that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. We need to send preachers and missionaries to all the nations so that the word of God is preached and people can hear it and believe. Some sow, some water, and some harvest. That's what the Bible teaches. Start there. Don't start with experiences. Don't start with somebody's story and get into the debate. We're called to be discerners. You say, well, what about Augustine's famous quote in Essentials Unity, Non-Essentials Liberty, and All Things Charity? I'm all about rallying around the gospel and not making too much over lesser things, but I never want to trade experience for scripture ever what about joining forces in the cultural war with with the mormons or with uh the roman catholic church the famous quote that al moeller said where he's like we might not all go to heaven together but we might all go to jail together well you know i don't know if i like that i'm just i'm just say it straight out i don't know that i like that i really actually don't like it that's why i'm bringing it up uh, i i hell is what matters keeping people from hell is what matters. You say, well, God is sovereign over there. I, yes, he's sovereign, but he tells us to preach the gospel so the people will be snatched from the fire. We don't want people to go to hell, right? Can I get an amen? And so we preach the gospel to people so they won't go to hell. That's why we don't win a cultural war. We don't do that. I mean, the culture is the culture. It's going down. We save people from this world. 
That's what we're to be about. That's what we're armed to be able to do. You win cultural victories with the Roman Catholics and suddenly you're blurring the lines in terms of what the gospel really is. Hey, we're all saved. It's all working. And then a Catholic is doing his work salvation along with you and you're doing it because you're saved and it gets kind of mishmashed and it's a problem. That's how Satan slithers in. My alma mater, Liberty University, uh, you know, it had some bad leadership that was there with Junior. And Junior wasn't, he was a bad man doing bad things. And he was compromising theologically. Bad character and bad theology go hand in hand because you take bad theology to mask your bad character. What was he doing? He was propping up Glenn Beck, who's a known Mormon, having him speak at their chapel. Oh, we'll call it convocation so we can get away with it. And then he'd speak there passionately. He speaks passionately. I'm going to speak passionately back this morning. It was wrong. He said, we have the same atonement with Christ. That's heresy. Thousands of kids, 18, 19, 20 year olds sent there by Christian conservative families to hear that. All because you had a bad president with a bad character who was using a bad theology to win a culture war instead of thinking about the kingdom of God. It was bad. It was bad in, in, uh, in their uh, graduation service. Same Jesus, same, same gospel. Not true. Not true. Mormons do not believe Jesus is God. So I went to the now acting president at Liberty who was a pastor here in town locally. And we talked about this and we resonated on that. And we, and now he's the president there. And so I'm thankful for Liberty University, you know, kind of riding the ship and going in the right direction. Why do, why do false teachers do this? Second Peter, you can read it in second Peter two, one to three and Jude, they feed their lust. They feed their greed. Their God is their belly. Philippians three nineteen. People driven to feed their flesh, they'll do anything, they'll say anything to get their flesh fed, to get their sexual drive satisfied. It's like a coal furnace for a locomotive. It's what they want, and we have to peel back their layers of skin. You say, how deceptive are false teachers? Uh, a friend of mine who was hearing the sermon in a pre-sermon setting, he said that he was down in Texas with his family in a former church setting, about 300 people in the auditorium. It was packed up in Texas. And he said, there were snakes everywhere in Texas. And by the way, I love Alaska because I hate snakes. I'm so fascinated by snakes that I watch videos about them. I don't know if you do that. You know, they're just scary. You just never know what's going to happen, what they're going to do. They're unpredictable. They don't ever calm down, really. They're always, you know, wondering when they're going to strike. And it was uh, biting on this eel, this electric eel, this video, and it couldn't hold its bite. And I'm cheering for the eel, you know, all right, get out of there. Well, this, this family was sitting in the middle of this church in Texas, and they're watching the preacher. It's 300 people in the room, and he looks down, and there's a snake that slithered in under his feet. I know. Isn't it great to live in Alaska? That's not going to happen. Now, you might get stomped by a moose, but not bitten by a snake. We're okay. And so he did what any godly, um, God-fearing American citizen would do. He stomped that snake's head immediately and killed it, sent it to the great beyond. And um, after the service, he picked up that snake. It was a long one. He brought it up to the pastor and said, this was in your church service, you know. And he said, that's amazing. He said, what's amazing to me is how something that big could slip in undetected under all of those feet from the back of the auditorium coming to the front. 
And that's just a word picture of how false teachers come into the church. They blend into the background. They act like they're harmless. They're completely fine. And they're right at our feet, just slithering in, undermining everything. While our attention is on good things, we're missing the evil things that we need to discern and protect the church from. Why do we want to do this? Well, we want to do this because of the same reason Jesus was doing this. Jesus was not trying to evangelize the Pharisees here. He's saying, you are condemned. You are pre-death damned. Why did he do that? He strips back the skin layers of their deception so that the crowds could be saved from their false teaching. That's why you do it. I would never want you to be heresy hunters. I don't want you to be fascinated with just, you know, um, debunking false religion. That's not what this is about. It's discerning truth from error so we can hold high the truth and say, come this way, not that. To say that this passage is just about being, I'm a fruit inspector. I'm somebody who just likes to know right and wrong. No, we are defenders of the truth. And we don't contend earnestly for the faith as an end in and of itself. You're not just right to be right. We contend earnestly for the faith to keep people out of hell. That's why we do it. We want to, we want to rip off the false teaching band-aid and show people what's there really Pharisees can be saved. Nicodemus was saved. Paul was saved. But uh, Jesus was shepherding this crowd. Um, Verse 23, the people who were amazed. And he was winning them at all costs. It's not protecting denominational fidelity. This is life and death, eternal stakes. Okay, let's look at our outline. That was all prologue. (laughs) It really was. I was a little bit off the chain this week. Um, Jesus steps for using discernment. So that's the outline. Um, and the first thing he does is he sets the diagnostic. So verse 33 sets the diagnostic. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the, truth, for the tree is known by its fruit. This is very proactive. The word make, it's poyao. It's the idea of to make or do. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a doing word. It's the idea that uh, a tree based on whether it's good or bad, will, will make something good or make something bad. It's that simple. Pretty basic. Um, I have apple trees. If the apple trees are healthy, they're going to make good apples. We cut a lot of branches back this year. It was dramatic. It was a lot of work. And, um, and I'm hoping there'll be good apples because it's, they're good trees and they're healthy. Boom. Um, if, if the trees are bad... You're going to have bad apples, and they'll, they won't be really edible. They'll be kind of gross. So uh, that's, that's, what, that's the diagnostic. It's an either-or. You either have good, good trees or bad trees. It's binary. Um, you know, the vine and branches analogy is a little different than that. Um, the vine in Jesus analogy in John 15 is talking about Jesus and the branch being connected to the vine in a way that, that fruit will, will passively be produced. It's the fruit of the spirit because we love Jesus. We're dialed into Jesus. Fruit comes out of that. Um, this is different. Jesus here is saying you are either good or you are bad. We're going to unpack that next week because we know we're sinners, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we trust Christ in the gospel, we're either people who do good things or bad things. So what Jesus is doing is he's drawing a line in the sand saying, before you drink the Kool-Aid of this accusation that I'm a Satanist, you need to look inside the hearts of the accuser and see if that is 
a good producing tree or a bad producing tree. The tree in the analogy is the person. It's us. We're either those who make good fruit or we make bad fruit. We have to examine that and think about that. It's one analogy. This section, by the way, verses 33 to 37, is not talking about trees through the whole thing. That's it. That was the verse. So this is more than just fruit and fruit inspection. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, point two. Point two, Jesus confronts people with the diagnostic. Not only does he set the diagnostic, he confronts people with the diagnostic. Here's the confrontation. It's a really soft-hearted, gentle, polite way to confront, just not wanting to offend. He says, you brood of vipers. You, here it is, you family of snakes. You family of venomous, poisonous snakes. That's what he says. He's looking right into their progeny there and going, look, your father is the devil, Satan. Satan is the accuser. He's the liar. He's the deceiver. He's Genesis 3. He's the serpent. And you are his progeny. You're his family. You come from the devil. That's what he's saying. It's, uh, in modern day, it's 100% hate speech, right? It's not hateful at all. He's just calling it out for what it is. It's, he's not a sinner. Jesus was never sinful in his speech. He's not being sinfully derogatory. He's not sinfully being provocative. He's just saying what needs to be said in the moment. He's saying what John the Baptist had said when the Pharisees and the Sadducees approached John for the baptism of repentance. John said, but when they saw many, Matthew says, when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his or John's baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit and he's using fruit and repentance here. And he's calling them vipers, just like what Jesus is doing with the tree and fruit and calling them vipers. Just saying, this is where you come from. You represent unpredictable evil. You have a bad family with a bad dad. That's what he's saying. Jesus is always moving from the inside to the out. He's trying to get... Um, the people to do heart excavation here. Look inside, look under the hood. It was plausible to them that the Pharisees could have been correct when they were calling Jesus satanic because of how much respect they would have had for the Pharisees. But so many people are looking at external things rather than looking at internal things. People are inspired by people externally, by their gifts, by their powers, by their wisdom, by their life coaching skills. You have to look inside to see what's inside that tells us the character that we need to discern on the outside. It's a principle that's clearly stated in verse 34, where it says, How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus invites them to look at the Pharisees' hearts. You say this, how can I look inside someone's heart? That's the question. How can you know what's going on inside someone's heart? I'll give you the answer. The scripture gives us the answer. Listen to what they say. You see in someone's heart by listening to what that person says. Do you hear what I'm saying? The x-ray vision 
the infrared that God gives you to be able to look inside the soul of a person is by listening to what they say. Because what people talk about is what they value most of all. What people say gives you a clue about what is valuable to them. People talk about their boat. They talk about their vacation. They talk about their life. They talk about only in things in temporary terms. They talk about their money. They talk about their security. They talk about their family. They talk about their wife or spouse or kids. These are the things they value most of all. Do people like that talk about God? Do they talk about the attributes of God? Do they talk about the affection they have for God? Do they talk about the love for Christ that they have in God? Do they talk about the gospel? Do they talk about being forgiven of sin? Do they talk about their sin? Do they talk about how sad they are about their sin? Do they talk about the freedom that they enjoy by repenting of their sins and, and applying the gospel to their own heart? Do they talk about discipling others? Do they talk about winning others to Christ? Do they talk about holiness? What people talk about reveals what they are worshiping. We're all worshipers. We're all made in the image of God. You're going to either worship yourself through images. I mean, the, the, the whole realm of image and sexual pornography and things people are worshiping all the time is them worshiping themselves. That's what people are doing. People are in this sort of Corinthianized culture in themselves, worshiping themselves, bowing down to the sin of self-gratification. They're either doing that or you're worshiping God. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. It's the abundance of the heart. What's going on in there is coming out of the mouth. It's a cycle that is irrefutable. This diagnostic is reliable. Why? Because when people talk about what they love, they're blessed by what they're talking about. You say even non-Christians? Yes, Christians are blessed by talking about God. We're blessed to gather as the community of the saints and to sing about God, and we feel the blessing of God in that. It's cyclical. You are praising God with your lips, and you're enjoying the blessing back in your heart. For non-Christians, when they talk about gambling, when they talk about sex, when they talk about being drunk, when they talk about sin, when they talk about the world, they are temporarily blessing themselves. Dopamine is squirting all in their minds and they're so happy in the moment, then they're empty, then they feel hopeless, and then they are left longing for more things to fill them up temporarily. Both are acts of worship. One is worshiping self, the other is worshiping Christ. It's one or the other. But the diagnostic is set. You're either a good tree or a bad tree. You're either producing good fruit or bad fruit. And then if you're a brood of vipers, you will be exposed by what you talk about. Because what you love is what you worship. And people keep doing it because it feeds them to do it. They keep worshiping themselves and the cycle can only be broken by grace We're going to look more into how this whole cycle can be broken. Jesus is stripping back the layers in this diagnostic to expose the hypocrite. But the exposure is not just to expose the hypocrite. It is to save the crowd. We want to to be exposed ourselves. We want our hypocritical layers to be stripped down so we can be rescued by Christ. But we want to also rescue others as we discern truth from error. As we clarify the gospel and win people to Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing. That's our mission. This is our raison d'etre because we want people to go to heaven, not hell.